0: And we're still talking
1: about revolution.
4: Hello and welcome to the Do and Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And a warning that this episode of Do and Time contains audio of Aboriginal deaths in custody and graphic discussion of the murder of an asylum seeker and deaths in custody. First up on the show, you will hear an interview with Chloe De Silva, activist with the Refugee Action Collective and member of Socialist Alliance and 3CR Presenter on Friday Breakfast Green Left Radio. We will commem- commemorate Reza Barati 10 years after he was murdered by guards. Then we will bring you an interview with Ilo Diaz from the Police Accountability Project in a Melbourne community legal. Listeners may recall that a couple of weeks ago in February there was a special Do In Time broadcast dedicated to D- TJ Hickey, during which there was discussion of the 17th February speak out organised by ISJA, 20 Years On There's Still No Justice, at the State Library. I invited Ilo onto the show to give a report back on the speak out and to also talk about the Police Accountability Project. Ilo was one of the, the speakers at this event. Finally, we will speak with Sarah Schwartz, who manages the Wirraway Police and Prison Accountability Practice at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and she's a lecturer at Melbourne Law School. We will speak with Sarah about the horrors of the parole system and discuss some inquests regarding deaths in custody, in particular in regards to prison health care. So we're going to be speaking with her as well. She was also a speaker at the recent TJ Hickey Speak Out. But now, without any further ado, we will now speak with Chloe, who will give a report back um, of a vigil commemorating the murder of the asylum seeker. Hello, Chloe. Welcome to the program.
5: Hi, Marissa and doing Time listeners. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm coming in from the stolen land, the land of the Bunurong people.
4: Wonderful, wonderful. So, Chloe, can you speak about, it's Reza Barati, isn't it?
5: Reza Barati, that's correct.
4: Yeah. Would you be able to speak about him and talk about what happened at the vigil and also the background leading up to that?
5: Yeah, certainly. So the Refugee Action Collective recently held a vigil for Reza Barati to remember his struggle and also the struggle of thousands of many other refugees who have been detained or imprisoned, I should say, um, unjustly by the Australian government in these offshore prison islands. Um, And it was a a small vigil, but we were happy that lots of people stopped on the street and listened to a few speakers. Um, And it was about commemorating or remembering Barati's death, even 10 years on, his, his death has really become a symbol of the brutality and impunity of Australia's detention re- regime. Um, did you want me to just sort of uh, tell listeners a little bit about um, Reza in case they don't know Absolutely. about Absolutely.
4: That would be amazing. But before you do, let's put this in context. So the vigil actually took place on the 16th of Feb- Friday, the 16th of February, wasn't it?
5: Correct, yeah.
4: Tell us more.
5: Uh, well uh, just about the vigil itself. Um, uh
4: well, really what ha- you were, you were going to mention the background so in case listeners ba- don't know.
5: Yeah. yeah, the the background to it um was yeah it's it, it was just really the the first vigil for Reza um who the refugee who died in offshore prison. Um the first vigil was quite a touching uh tribute to him um and it was 10 years ago and it was held at Federation Square and so a lot of refugee activist groups usually do um, have visuals for refugees like Reza. Um, so that's a little bit about the background of, of the visual. Um, we usually do things like that all the time. So, yeah, please, um, yeah. yeah, just to be aware. But Reza Barati, and the reason we did this is, is because he is one of the many refugees who have died as a result of Australia's cruel and racist refugee policies, um, he arrived in Australia on July 24th, 2013, which was a very unlucky date because he arrived five days, just five days after Labor announced their PNG solution, which is the solution being that any refugee who arrived in Australia by boat after July 19, 2013, will be denied resettlement and sent to Papua New Guinea or Nauru to the detention camps. And Reza belonged to Iran's Kurdish minority. So the Kurds, um, you would know, have been also suffering an ongoing genocide. And Reza really left Iran to seek a better life for himself. Um, and But on February 17th uh, in 2014, guards at the detention centre on Manus Island and also local contractors attacked refugees and asylum seekers who were uh, held there indefinitely by the Australian government. They came in uh, uh, armed with guns and pipes and sticks and machetes. A detention worker hit Reza Barati multiple times with a piece of timber spiked with nails. Another contractor dropped a rock on his head. And as he lay there injured on the ground, up to 10 men repeatedly kicked him in the head So Reza was only 23 years old when he died of his injuries. And so that's kind of the context of why we had the vigil and the fact that there hasn't really been any accountability uh, by the Australian government. Um, There were people who were tried, they were charged and uh, faced years in jail, but um, justice has never been... um, you know, we still to this day, um, there are a lot of others involved who have never been brought to justice, and I'm including the Australian government and people like Scott Morrison in, in included in that.
4: Absolutely. I mean, and in fact, now that you're talking about it, Chloe, I do remember being there at the first vigil, and I remember that he was... I recorded it for 3CR. I'll have to ha- look for it in the archives and see if it's still around.
5: Yeah, oh, that's great that you were there. I mean, I know you're you're a very long time activist. That you, you, I actually, I don't think I was at that vigil, um, but it's it is uh, it is really frightening that you know we are still the the detention regime, off, the offshore processing. This is um, you would think that after a death like this. Um, it would bring an end to to this injustice. But actually, um, it, ever since Rosa died, um, it only got worse. So it, it's um, yeah, it is a shame, and and the refugee rights movement really needs to uh, continue to fight for uh, to to get all all these refugees brought back um, um brought to Australia immediately um and uh, given a safe place to live this is this is um their right to do this
4: yeah it really is and and we need to really i suppose commemorate all you know refugees and and really remember also Australia's cruel and racist border control policies
5: yeah exactly yeah and um and also you know media like 3CR Um, you know we do need um, independent media that's so important when it comes to this because at the time the Australian government and the media lied about events surrounding Reservorati's death we had Scott Morrison saying things like he was killed outside Manor's camp Um, that was not the case Um, and it was really left up to activists and um, independent media to tell the truth about what happened to those men. Now, up to 70 men were—I forgot to mention that—up to 70 men were injured. Um, two lost eye, their eyes, like one of their eyes. So it was one had their throat slashed. Um, it, it was a horrific, horrific attack, not just on Reza but on 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 many other refugees. Um, and you know, as as a uh, sorry to go on and on because no, it's, such a, it's important. It's, yeah, it's such a, a traumatic thing, but it's a lot of these refugees who have been released from offshore detention have then gone through, um, you know, they have had to undergo, they've actually been quite traumatised by their detention. Some of them have been kept in there for six to ten years. I've, I've spoken to a refugee who uh, was released up to 12 years in detention, one of the longest-serving refugees um, in detention, a Tamil refugee. And they're having to cope with a lot of mental health issues and also physical ailments due to being um, imprisoned in that way and that limited the freedom of movement as well. Um, so there have been over 20 refugees who have died as a result of medical neglect and um, on the island um, where there's little access to medical care. And when I think your listeners would remember when uh, the... Medivac legislation was passed. It was was repealed later, but when it was passed, a lot of refugees were brought to Australian shores, and instead of being released into the community and treated for the medical injuries, um, they were locked up in onshore detention, and then there was a big fight um, uh, by the refugee rights movement to release them. Some of them were detained for over two years, and some of them actually said that that was even worse. But offshore detention, because at least in offshore detention, as horrific as it was, um, offshore they could sort of move around a little bit. Um, out, yeah. Some some were able to move outside the camps. Some were contained um, and put up with things like isolation and uh, things like that. But, but when they were trapped in those hotels, um, oh. they couldn't move. <laughs> they were stuck there for, for like one to two years, and that was another nightmare for them.
4: Absolutely, and and the vigil was good.
5: Yeah, the the, the vigil was. Um, yeah, it was it was a good event, as always. Um, you know, we 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 do uh, we want to keep remembering as a as a as an activist group, the Refugee Action Collective will not let the Australian government or the people forget about people like Rosa Barati um, and what they underwent. I mean, refugees like Baruzbichani and others who were incarcerated described the conditions on these islands and there's still refugees trapped on PNG right now Uh, it's really hot it it can reach up to 50 degrees on those islands and um, people like the Chinese have described the conditions as barbaric, dehumanising deeply and deliberately punitive Um, and you know they were overpacking the detention centres as well so at the time of Reza's attack uh, they were holding 1,300 Three three hundred and forty refugees, when it was really designed to house um, to hold five hundred. I mean, it shouldn't have been designed at all. They, they, they really need to close down all the camps.
4: Absolutely, uh, they should. And you know, I wanted to actually speak to you more about the PNG solution, but I think I'd like to have you back again. Pretty soon, we're going to be interviewing um, um, Ilo Diaz, who's going to speak about T.J. Hickey and commemorate yeah. that in a second, He's de- you know, about TJ Hickey's death, Aboriginal teenager, yeah. death in custody. Yeah. So we're running out of time, but it's so lovely to have you, Chloe, and I, I just think it's really important that you were able to come on and speak about this because he was murdered in cold blood mm-hmm. and, and there is racism and we need to bring the refugees home.
5: Exactly. And let them stay. Yeah, well said. And people who still are coming by boat to Australia uh, are turned away on the high seas by the Australian government that is an extremely racist policy and it's a, uh, an expression of the white Australia policy and instead of the Australian government um, welcoming them and say and actually using the money because they're spending billions of dollars on these um, on these prisons offshore to keep them running instead exactly. of spending the money on that they can absolutely afford to spend it on on welcoming refugees and giving them um, a home, uh, instead of trying to make the political point about people smugglers um, and trying to say that we're we're not being tough enough on borders. Well, exactly. You know, it's it's so ridiculous. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show, and um, for your listeners. Am I allowed to just um, promote the upcoming forum that we're having soon?
4: Absolutely. Really quickly.
5: Yep. Great. Um, so where our next event is coming up on March 18th entitled Why Does Labor Support Corrupt and Racist Border Policies? Um, because it's a bipartisan uh, cruelty. Both Labor and um, um, the LNP support this. Uh, at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre, it's also online, and you can find out more by visiting the website rack uh, slash um, dash dick.org on social media pages.
4: And tune in to the radio show that um, Chloe is a part of as well, Green Left Radio, on Fridays, Friday Breakfast. Thank
5: you. Thanks Thanks a lot, Chloe.
4: Thanks, Marissa. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And that was Chloe de Silva from the Refugee Action Collective, speaking about the horrific murder of Reza Barati and looking at um, refugee policies and and PNG solution. Celebrate all that unites us and host a Feast for Freedom this year. Cook delicious global recipes gifted by refugees and come together with your friends, family and community while raising vital funds for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Register now at feastforfreedom.org.au The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show, and I'm just going to put on another announcement. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday.
0: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
2: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
0: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
2: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza.
0: Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
4: And you're back with the Do and Time show and in case people have just tuned in, this is 3CR Community Radio and we're going to be bringing you an interview with Ilo from the Police Accountability Project and that's based at Melbourne Community Legal. Hello Ilo, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
4: Really lovely to have you. Now, I'm wondering if you could just start off introducing yourself and talk a little bit about the Police Accountability Project.
3: Sure, yes. So my name's Ilo Diaz. Uh, My official title here is the Advocacy Coordinator for the Police Accountability Project. Um, We're, like you said, we're based in the community legal centre, the Inner Melbourne Community Legal Centre, but the Police Accountability Project started its life at the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Legal Centre. And so the Police Accountability Project um, started off its life... uh, with one of the biggest uh, racial profiling cases that Victoria had seen for a while, which was the Daniel Hale Michael case versus Victoria Police, it was a historic case where uh, a number of young African and Afghani boys t- uh, took Victoria Police to the courts for racial profiling, um, which ended up with a settlement in which police um, decided to to, to do a, to ban racial profiling. That was over 10 years ago. And um, and so in that time, the the project uh, was born to kind of keep police accountable. Um, And in that time, we've done a lot more than just racial profiling. We we do all sorts of police accountability issues. And so now we we live inside the Inner Melbourne Community Legal Centre, and we have a number of lawyers that look at different types of police accountability issues, and we, we often do a lot of advocacy around it. Um, our main one being at the moment asking for uh, the introduction of, of a police ombudsman here in Victoria.
4: Oh, that would be very interesting to have a police ombudsman. Uh, mm-hmm. If we were going to have a police ombudsman, it would then be hopefully about police not investigating police. Well, that's
3: right, that's exactly right and that's one of the you know one of the reasons that um, you know you guys invited me on was to speak about the TJ Hickey event. Um, and, and while the TJ Hickey, well TJ Hickey and, and what he went through and the family has gone through, uh, it's, it's not my story to tell. Uh, particularly, we definitely echo the the, the cause for indif- independent investigations that the family has been calling for for over 20 years. And so really, you know, one of the things that we always iterate is that uh, it's very hard to find justice in a system where police investigate police, uh, and we saw that with TJ Hickey's death.
4: Indeed and you may not have heard my introduction at the beginning but I said on air that I invited you onto the show just so that you could talk a little bit about not so much to tell TJ's story but mm-hmm. to talk give a little bit of a report back on the speak out that happened in February and also talk about police investigating police and why is it harmful and what can we do to have civilian review boards and other um things that can stop that deaths in custody
3: yeah well look i mean i thought the speaker was really great It was um you know i was just uh in awe to see the the speaker list and to be in this you know in the same uh, set up as, as all those amazing um advocates was was so great and it was great to see such a great turnout um and yeah look i think there's so much that uh, the community can be doing i actually don't know if many people know how the current complaint systems work and i think that maybe that's one of the issues is that many people think that they will be you know um making a complaint or uh asking for an investigation and, and they they suspect that there is an independent investigation into that it's actually 99 percent of all investigations are done by police are, uh, about police are done by police um not even worse than that is that many times when you complain about the police um it's the same colleague it's colleagues from the same uh, station that are investigating their colleagues, and so it's actually rotten to the core. The way that uh, we here in Victoria we do the complaint system is so so far from best practice that it's um, that we just said there's no there's, we can't be able to reform this uh, in any way in which police are able to investigate themselves. But the only real solution is to have complete independent investigations by a police ombudsman. That's right.
4: Indeed, no, no, I'm not sure. I'm sure that you would know the case of uh, the woman Karina Horvath, who was right. beaten up by police, and that case was pretty long and terrible, wasn't it? Um, and that was all about police investigating police. And she and she's not. It's not just Aboriginal people, is it? It's also non-Indigenous people that suffer. Well,
3: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, Karina Horvath's case was emblematic about that, and. Um and, and, you know, and not, it's just not, it's, like you said, it's not just in uh, First Nations people, it's across the board. Uh, we don't have a system where we can trust that any investigation about police misconduct is going to be taken seriously or being done in, uh, independently. It's, it's, we're really at a, at a place where it's, it's just unsustainable. Um, you know, I often tell people that I work with, I say, you've got, you know, you've been harmed by police. Let's have a look at your options. Option one is that you sue police. Now, that's really hard and tedious and can take a long, long time. And sometimes you don't find the justice that you really need in that that way. The second one is to go to the media and call it out. But that's not for everybody. A lot of people uh, don't trust the media. And once the story is out in the media, you lose control of it. And so what you are looking for by speaking out to media, sometimes you don't find there. And it it actually causes more harm. And the final option is to complain to police. And I say that's a broken system. You you will definitely not find any justice in the complaint system. And so we're really left with no options, very little options. To actually hold police accountable, and we're just at a spot where more and more people are being harmed by police. I mean, you look, you look on the weekends about how many times police are using OC spray or pepper spray at peaceful protesters, or a, you know what they say to de-escalate a situation, and you think this is this there is there is going to be no accountability there. There is going to be nobody held accountable. And so it's really, like, it's about informing the public that if you, when you, because sometimes it's just a matter of time, when you are harmed by police, we have currently a system that will not hold them accountable and we need to change that.
4: Absolutely, because, you know, we've really got to look at the fact that police mechanisms are failing at the moment and the use of civil litigation isn't necessarily the right path, and there really is not really an effective system for investigating pl- complaints against the police, is there?
3: No, 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 no whatsoever. So look, uh, the, you know, and a lot of people do point to um, civil li- litigation as a tool, and and that that has its place. That has its place. It's definitely a better a better. Um, it can be a better outcome than complaint. You know, the civil litigation is when you sue police and uh but but it, I do warn people it's a long process, and sometimes it can be labor- labor intensive and it, it asks a lot of you and and you know the the best sometimes the best outcome is a bit of a bit of money, and the police you know maybe the police will say, Sorry, we're not sure right and so it's not for everybody um and then people other people point say to me, well Elo, you know we do have an independent police complaint system, it's called iBac. Uh, and they do police complaints, <laughs> okay, and and I say to them, well, yeah, they do. They do about one percent of complaints, less than one percent of complaints last year, in their annual, in their own annual report, in their own reporting, they did less than one percent of police complaints. So I don't know if you call that an independent body, but I don't, I don't no. see them doing much compl- complaints at all.
4: That's not really an independent body, and it appears sometimes the police with with ombudsman's with an ombudsman what would their role be i mean they can recommend can't they but is that really effective because it's not really you can't actually make them do anything make the police do anything you can just recommend
3: well, yeah, I mean, this is—I mean, it's the system in which we're working, and and all the fraughtness that comes in that system. But yeah, look, um, a police ombudsman for us uh, needs to be independent. It needs to be well resourced. It needs to be culturally sensitive and appropriate, um, and it needs to be able to do t- make timely and binding enforcements uh, and recommendations. Yeah. And so. It's, it's about, it's not just it's not just having about the pretty name. And, oh, you know, police ombudsman, oh, we've, we've, it's a success. No, we need to look under the hood and see how it works and what powers it has. It needs to have the appropriate powers to be able to actually create systemic change. And that's one of the biggest issues that we have, is that, you know, a lot of the, the police will say, oh, but we have our own disciplinary, you know, we have an internal disciplinary board and we do our own discipline. So, you know, don't, nothing to see here. But it's not about an individual officer uh, being disciplined. It's about a system which allows these um, these issues to fester and not ever being able to be brought to light and be um, approached in a systemic way to get rid of racism and sexism within the police. Um, and so we really need a body that's actually able to do that, look at it system-wide and say, here is this a system that is just not fit for purpose and these are the in- binding, enforcing recommendations that we are going to say to police that they must do to change the way and to reduce harm in the community.
4: Indeed. And, I mean, you know, we're talking, you're, you're speaking about this, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking about what's happened all over the country, for example, you know, crossing over to Queensland we're having a look at, um, you know, Lex Watton, who I've interviewed quite a few times, particularly after he was um, he got out of prison, he was on parole and he was gagged, and looking about how Chris Hurley got away with it, um, you know, he was acquitted, the police were having yep. beers um, yep. after the so-called riot, which was really a protest. And then you've got, obviously, um, TJ Hickey, who, um, who was impaled on the fence and that was also about police investigating police, wasn't it?
3: Uh, I mean, it's all about, like, uh, I mean, it's so appropriate to bring up these cases because in each one of those, it's, we have a system where police are looking at, their, at themselves and they're saying, hey, do you see any wrongdoing? No, nah, I don't see any wrongdoing. Okay, we're all good. Mm. And, you know, we could count on one hand how many times a police officer has been found guilty of a crime in uh, around... Um, you know, around a murder or around a killing, mm. um, or around misconduct, even. And it's it's just it's just we're at a point where it's just we're fed up, we're done, we can't keep this system propped up anymore. We need something different. We need something that can actually bring about accountability. Because the longer we sit on this, and the longer we let police investigate themselves, it's 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 given the, it's giving them the social uh, tick of approval to that, that it, and saying that it's okay. It's fine. Nothing to see here. And we and just—we uh, need to get behind not just First Nations people but yeah. racialized communities across the board who have been calling for this for years. And it's just a, it's a matter of bringing it to national attention. We need police ombudsmen. We need independent investigations. We need to get police out of investigating themselves.
4: Indeed. And, and I'm just looking here at a quote from Alison Thorne, who is one of the speakers um, at the TJ speak out and she says TJ's death highlights that there are inadequate mechanisms to hold police to account accountable. And what I find really interesting here is that she talks about the establishment of independent bodies Mm -hmm. um, and Alison's from ISJA, as you know, with real powers, you know, to hold police to account and the Black Panther movement actually um, initiated these, these boards, but under capitalism, I mean, how is that going to happen? <laughs>
3: I mean, yeah, look, I think, the, you know, the way that I look at it um, is that we, we police and the way the government functions works under a certain um, logic, and that logic is reformist and it's uh, capitalistic and it's, uh, you know, so-called liberal democratic. And so we need, a, like, you know, asking for, a, asking for a police ombudsman is not a, rev- it's a revolutionary act in the sense
1: of course. that we are,
3: we, in the sense that we're asking for something that we haven't seen so far. But it's not revolutionary in the sense that it will solve everything.
4: But uh, at least it will cause, it, it will help.
3: Exactly, exactly. And so the the idea with this is that we're trying to reduce the harm that police are able to do. So if we have a body with good powers with some um, teeth who can, uh, you know, ongoingly monitor and review and keep an eye on when police are uh, pulling out their guns, when are they using O.C. spray, to who, what race are they... Like, who are they aiming it to? Is it people of colour? Is it people Is it First Nations? And which are the areas that are over-policed? Which are the areas that are getting better police protection than others? If we have a body that can do all of those things, it will hopefully reduce the harm that police are able to cause. Um... Like they are able to cause now because they're around but they're able to go out and do all this harm and not, and not be accountable to it. So Absolutely. so yeah, so the call for a police ombudsman, it's revolutionary in the act, in the fact that it's it's something that we've never had, but it's also not a panacea. It won't it won't um, fix everything.
4: There's just so much that we need to do and I, I don't know if you've read you may have read some of the work of Tamar Hopkins contained in her thesis. You um, you know Tamar Hopkins, um, who was the principal solicitor of Fleming, Fleming Ken? Yes, yes, yes. And did quite a lot of work on the People's Hearing. Were you at the People's Hearing?
3: No, I was overseas when it took place, unfortunately.
4: Uh, I was there and it was just, they need to have, there needs to be more People's Hearings. It was It was so electric and so incredible that you had African communities, you had so many people in community who were coming together to talk about this the stories not only of police harassment but also the way people were have been murdered and also looking at some of the complaints that emerged and it was a very powerful tool for change
3: oh most definitely i mean i think that You know, it was such a a marker in time that people's hearing that, it, you know, it's it's become a reference point, a touchstone for so many of us in the sector to think about that that moment and think how powerful and, you know, the ripples it created afterwards that, yeah, we definitely need more. But, you know, it's also about um, getting the right people to listen, because I think us in communities and us who, who live through it, we know what the issues are. We know the problems. We live it, you know, and we hear it every day. It's the it's the people who turn a blind eye to it. It's the it's it's the allies that we need in different parts of um of the communities uh, to be able to listen and go, Okay, we need to we need to actually start doing something and, and get behind this call because it's just untenable.
4: Illo, thank you so much for coming onto the program and it was like I said, I, I wanted to just interview yourself because about the project, the police mm-hmm. accountability project, and also to to just get a little bit of a report back which which you did I mean we did discuss that briefly and there were quite a few speakers from Ischa there weren't there and I believe yeah, Robbie boy. Thorpe was one of the speakers as well and there were also some there was also a speaker in Sydney as well um, Gail Hickey who is the mother of TJ um, is is obviously really really happy that this this issue is still being kept alive
3: yeah and um yeah I, I can just say you know every time um that these uh, deaths in custody happens um it's a it's a it's a dark day for Australian history, but uh, the the work that families do to find justice for their for their loved ones is just um inspirational and what keeps us going here in the project as well
4: absolutely. I mean, what keeps me going on the do and time show is that there are always people coming here from diverse communities um, to speak about things in a safe environment and to have the loved ones as well on the show of people that have died in custody as well is is really important.
3: Most definitely. Most definitely. Thank you so much for having me.
4: Thanks so much. We'll talk again.
3: I'm sure we will. Thank you.
4: Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And that was Elo Diaz from the Police Accountability Project at um in a Melbourne legal speaking about a host of issues in regards to police investigating police and about having a police Ombudsman
1: Before too long, the one that
4: music festival presents sydney road street party sunday march the 3rd from 12 p.m over 90 artists performing on one massive day catch bench press billiam and the split bills bumpy charlie needs braces chick chicka merpire michael beach al carlson pauper spit teether and kuya neil yorinda and heaps more Plus, markets, community stalls and parties happening all along Sydney Road. more info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Do Time show and it's approximately 4.44 and we're going to be speaking pretty soon with Sarah Schwartz. Any mispronunciation mistakes are mine and I'll get her to have her introduce herself properly when she comes on pretty soon. Well, you just heard a song previously by Ruby Hunter and before that there was a song by Paul Kelly before too long. And Sarah manages the Wirraway Police and Prison Accountability Practice at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and is a lecturer at Melbourne Law School. And I wanted to speak with Sarah um, just a little bit about what's happening with the parole system and prison health care. But we will be speaking with her in more detail about all this next Monday with a more detailed interview later on. And I wanted to speak to her today about Heather Heather as well and how she died in custody. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Marisa. Thanks so much for having me.
4: It's lovely to have you. And we had quite a spontaneous on-air discussion. I know teams didn't work that day, but... <laughs> and um, that was in regards to um, our interview today. And... Thanks for for coming on. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the practice that that you're managing?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So my name's Sarah Schwartz. I um, manage the Away Police and Prison Accountability Practice at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, So we do everything ranging from um, actions against the police and prisons, um, trying to get um, better... uh, people's uh, rights protected in prison um, and coronial inquest into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in police or prison custody. Um, we, work, we work with um, quite a few families of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've passed away in, in custody and... Um, Currently, we're representing, we um, previously represented the family of Veronica Nelson, um, who passed away in custody in January 2020. I'm sure many listeners have heard of her story. Um, and just today, we were in court um, for the coronial inquest into the passing of Heather Cal Garrett, um, who passed away in custody just two years less than two years after Veronica passed away and um, her inquest also raises issues of um, prison health care and parole, which I know you guys wanted to speak about.
4: I mean, we, obviously we won't have time to speak about all that today, but we can certainly do an extended interview for next Monday. But uh, the directions hearing for Heather Calgarrett was today, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. We had the directions hearing, which um, set the scope for the coronial inquest, and um, and um, Heather's family, who have been, you know, waiting for answers and justice for um, many years now, um, have um, were successful in arguing for the scope of the inquest to also include um, her parole application. So, you know, Heather passed away in November 2021. She'd been eligible for parole since December 2020. Um, and um, And if she'd been granted parole, she wouldn't have been in prison. Um, and so her family's been fighting, you know, for answers about why she wasn't granted parole and what happened with her parole application. You know, and, and Heather's story really reflects so many other stories that we hear at Valden for women in prison um who, you know, aren't granted parole um, for reasons like delays, like not having appropriate housing outside and um, Victoria's parole system is one of the harshest um, in the country and has meant that so many um, more people, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, are just um, languishing behind bars when they could be in community.
4: That's really fantastic that you were able to explain how the parole system encourages deaths in custody and the horrors of, you know, the violations of human rights of um, women in prison.
2: Yeah, so, I mean... Victoria's parole system was um, was changed in you know there were a number of changes between two thousand and eleven and two thousand and sixteen um, which made it a lot harder for people to access parole um, and after since that time there's been a forty four percent decrease in the number of people on parole you know we we see the people all the time who you know either have chosen not to apply for parole because it's too difficult. Or because, or they've been refused parole because they don't have access to proper housing, um, or they, um, or, or they don't have access to the supports that they need, or they don't have access to the programs in prison that the parole board has told them that they need to do to be eligible for parole. So it just means that so many people um, are you know, staying in prison where the whole purpose of parole is so people, you know, are released from custody early so that they can be in community um, which supports their rehabilitation and people aren't just aren't getting access to that and they're just staying in custody for longer.
4: So, specifically, Heather Calgarrett died at Sunshine Hospital. How did she end up in there?
2: So, the... The coronial inquest into Heather's passing is going to start on the 29th of April, so we'll get a lot more details sure. um, then. But, you know, Heather, um, we know already um, from what the court has told the public that um, Heather um, received a, um injection of buprenorphine um, the day before she was found unconscious at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. She was found by her sister, um, Suzanne Calgarrett, who's been a really powerful advocate for her. Um, and so the coronial inquest is going to look at, you know, the appropriateness of her health care that she was provided in custody, her mental health care, um, and also at this parole issue.
4: Yeah, and in fact, she she comes from quite a few lands, doesn't she? She's a very proud Noongar woman and Pitinjara woman as well.
2: Yeah, Heather Calgarit's, um proud Yamatji, Noongar, Wongai, and Pinanjara woman, Um, and, you know, her family, they've released some statements today which I'd really urge people to read, you know, speaking about how much she loved her culture, how much she enjoyed painting and writing, and, um, you know, had a a really amazing sense of humour and was the rock of her family. was always helping and caring for everyone. Um, And her family's made really beautiful statements about her, her mum, Auntie Jenny Calgarit, and her sister, Suzanne Calgarit.
4: The Do and Time show has a very long history of of reading statements out by the loved ones of people that have died in custody and and we will continue to do so. And we've also had a history of interviewing people from VALS as well. So, Sarah, I am so happy that, that you've come onto the show and later on um, after the show finishes we'll call you to plan for next week. But um, in the meantime, I wanted to really honour... Um, the fact that, that that you're here, and that you're helping to to actually broadcast media that is not broadcasted in the mainstream.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Marissa, and Thanks for the doing time show. You guys do such awesome work, and um, yeah, as you say, it's just so important that these stories are told. That Heather's stories told. That other um, people who've died in custody, that their stories are told. You know. We don't, um, we rarely hear about systems like the parole system and the prison healthcare system. And we know that these are really corrupt systems that are in crisis and are just leading to death behind bars. So, so important that your show is uplifting those stories.
4: Well, you've emailed me a list of inquests that I'd really like to work through over the year with, with you. Um, and, and just to talk about those, I mean, obviously we can't talk um, if there's, you know, if if they're in progress, we can't talk in detail. But obviously, when those findings happen, we can do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you know, we're we're a bit limited in what we can say while the inquests are going on. Yeah. But um, there are quite a few coronial inquests that we're um, waiting for findings on. So um, the passing of um, Michael Suckling, who passed away at Ravenhall, um, whose inquest was last year. Um, the passing of um, Nerisha Cash, who passed away, um, whilst waiting for police to attend her house are just some of the inquest findings that we are waiting for um, in, in the inquest findings into people who've died in police or prison custody or after police contact.
4: Absolutely. And, and it's it's good that this inquest with um, Heather Calgarrett, that's starting on the 29th of April, and that will run for a couple of months.
2: It will run for about three weeks um, uh, from the 29th of April, maybe extended. Um, yeah, and it's going to really tackle those um, those big issues of um, healthcare and um, parole and, and, you know, the reasons why Heather passed away in custody.
4: Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to the program. Is there anything else that you'd like to add b- before we finish?
2: I just want to, um, I guess, pay tribute to Heather's family in their fight for justice. Um, You know, there have been um, over 560 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've died in custody since the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, And, you know, families, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, continue to show up and fight for justice for their loved ones. Um, And also just want to do a shout-out to the Darjua Foundation and other organisations who support and work with those families um, and, you know, continue to really fight for justice and for an end to Aboriginal deaths in custody.
4: Indeed, and that's a really important foundation. Thank you so much, Sarah, and I look forward to continuing this discussion um, for next week's interview soon.
2: Thanks so much, Marissa. Take
4: Take care. care. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that was Sarah Schwartz who... Manages um, the Prison Accountability Practice, the Wirae Practice at Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And we'll be continuing our discussion next week and bringing you further coverage about inquests and Aboriginal deaths in custody. So it's goodbye from Marissa. Stay tuned every Monday from four to five for the Doin' Time Show. And we're going to be going out, going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Whitefella from the Rumpy Band. Bye, stay safe.